Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. We're continuing our series through the book of Psalms this summer. And this morning we are going to be looking at all of the verses, all 16 verses of Psalm 91. Please give your attention to God's word. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Do you have a stress alarm in your body? Do you have a part of your body that tells you very clearly when you're too stressed out? With me, it's my upper back. God has put a slight kink in my upper part of my spine so that when I get stressed out and the muscles in my back get tight, it wrenches that kink in my spine and pinches the nerve and it hurts. And it keeps on hurting until I can get those muscles relaxed so that it will stop twisting the spine. That is like a big warning light when my back hurts like that. And it's, I've dealt with this my whole adult life. It says you're too stressed out. I can go to a chiropractor and get some relief. I can take some muscle relaxant and get some relief. But really, the solution is to get rid of the stress. Do you ever notice that the Bible doesn't use the word stress? You can use a concordance, study the entire scriptures, you'll never find the word stress. Instead, the Bible uses some much more uncomfortable words. Worry, anxiety, and fear. Those are the words that the Bible uses for what we call stress. You see, we like the word stress better because it sounds like something outside of us. It sounds like a condition that comes upon us, 
like a set of circumstances that we stumble into. And so we'll say things like, I have too much stress in my life. But if we were to translate that into biblical terms, listen to how it sounds in using a biblical word. I have too much fear in my life. That makes you more uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because stress isn't something outside of us. It's not a disease. It's not a circumstance. It's really an issue of faith. Because fear is opposite to faith. When you think about what causes stress in your life, what are the kinds of things in your life that you complain about that give you stress? Let me give you a more biblical interpretation of those things. It's actually fear. Fear of change. Fear of sickness. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of death. Fear of disease. Fear of conflict. Fear of ridicule. Those are the stresses in your lives. Some of them, obviously, for you, that might be the fear of this. For you over here, it might be the fear of something else. But that's the stress that you struggle with in life. How do we overcome those fears? How do we deal with these fears, not as a medicinal issue or a therapy issue, but actually a spiritual issue, which it is at the core? How do we overcome those fears? We all long for what the culture's been talking about for the last several years, about safe spaces. I looked it up on Webster's Dictionary. It's interesting to me that if you go to Webster's Dictionary online, they actually have a definition for safe spaces. Safe spaces, it's become that big of an issue in our culture. A safe space, according to Webster's Dictionary online, it says, a safe space is a place such as on a college campus, which is where a lot of this debate has taken place, a place intended to be free of bias, conflict, criticism, or potentially threatening actions, ideas, or conversations. And that's a pipe dream in this fallen world, isn't it? That there's any place on this planet where you could be free of those things. Because that's the reality of this fallen world. And the, we should not be mocking people who are longing for a safe place. We shouldn't be calling them snowflakes. We should be preaching the gospel to them. Because there is only one safe place in this fallen world. And it's the place that Psalm 91 is trying to point us to. Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And if you want to get to a key place in the psalm, you always look for, most psalms have a, a key verse or two verses that summarizes the message of the whole psalm. That's found in verses 9 and 10, where it builds on that statement in verse 1, where the ultimate safe place for life is, which is in the shelter of the Most High, in the shadow of the Almighty, goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. The Lord is our safe place. Dwelling in him is the way to get rid of all fear. If you were to become a witness 
against the mafia or against some gang in the city, you'll probably want to go to the police and ask for what they call protective custody. And that's because when your enemy is stronger than you are, you better find a protector who is stronger than your enemy. And that's what the Lord is for his people. The Lord is stronger than all evil that is against us. He is our protector. He is our refuge in the language of verse 1. He is our fortress. He is our safe space. Psalm 91 basically takes all the dangers, and this is a dangerous world. We lose sight of that. We live in probably one of the safest, most insured, you know, cultures that ever lived on the face of the planet. We feel more safe than any people have ever felt in history. But yet, that world out there is so dangerous. It's full of dangers. And Psalm 91 is pretty comprehensive. It covers almost every possible danger you can think of. It uses poetic language to describe them. But when you, when you break them down, you realize it's talking about the dangers we face in three basic categories. The first category is in terms of our enemies. Yes, we have enemies out there in the world. People who want to harm us. People who want to take what we have. People who want even to kill us. People who want to mock and ridicule what we stand for in our faith. We have enemies. But the psalmist says to us, when you dwell in the Lord, there's no need to fear your enemies. Verse 3 says, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. A fowler is a bird trapper. And he goes on to say that the Lord, if he is your safe space, if you hide under the shadow of his wings... It says he's like a mother hen that gathers you and protects you. And that's a very common image in scripture. God is a mother hen protecting her chicks. Goes on to say in verse 5, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. And you get that day-night imagery in the poetic images he gives us. Nothing by day, nothing by night should cause you fear. Neither, you know, it's 24-7 protection from our God. That neither do you, need, do you need to fear the monsters that are under the bed or the monsters in the closet, nor do you need to fear the bullies on the playground that are going to pick on you and beat you up. You need not fear, the psalmist says. That terror of the night reminds me of the prayer that many of us, probably a generation or two ago now, but many of us were taught that prayer. Lord, when we'd go to bed, our parents would put us in our bed and say, now I, lay myself, my, lay, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What a dark prayer. <laughs> I mean, we were all taught it. We all said it. You know, those, those older ones, anyway, we used to say it when we were kids. But I, when I got older, I thought, wow. You know, tuck your kid into this safe, nice, warm bed and say, now pray that you won't die tonight, that you'll wake up in the morning, you know. But again, realize the reason I think we've gotten away from that, that prayer goes way back. I don't know how, where, how far it goes back, but it goes way back in history. It's because we think we're so safe. We think we're so insulated by the dangers of life. We are so insulated even from death, we don't even think about it. But my wife's been doing a lot of genealogical studies lately. And one thing you realize, if you go back in your family's history, you go back a generation or two or three, you start to see the families are bigger and bigger. You know, we, we, were, we were 
looked at strangely because we had five kids. That's a big family these days. But back then, 12 kids, 14 kids, 18 kids wasn't unusual. Part of that is so you had a workforce to put on the farm. But the other part of that is, is that so many of the children died. So many of the children died. Death was a reality that children needed to be prepared for. Because it wasn't just going to be their pet bird dying or their kitten getting hit by a car. It was their siblings were going to die probably. They needed to be prepared to deal with it. And so prayers like that would help prepare them. But notice how that prayer says, you're in the hands of the Lord. And if you die, you want him to take you to be with him. You see, we need not fear our enemies. Yes, there are terrorists out there who would kill us in a moment if they could. There are thieves, there are rapists, there are kidnappers, there are bosses who dislike us and want us out of our job. There are neighbors who wished we were out of the neighborhood. There are friends or family members that hate what we believe and what we stand for. But the psalmist says, do not fear your enemies, because if you dwell in the Lord, you are safe. Second category is disease. Think of that as a major stress issue in life is fear of disease. The psalmist says, when you dwell in the Lord, there's no need to fear disease. Verse 3, for he will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. We don't use that word very much anymore. Basically, it's talking about the plague, an epidemic, a disease that spreads through the population, killing people left and right. That's what it's talking about, pestilence. Twice, he says, the Lord will deliver us from it. It says in verses 5 and 6, You will not fear the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side in a pestilence, in a plague, in an epidemic. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You know, I think about a couple of years ago, there were news going around, the news services talking about how doctors are getting concerned that, we're, that uh, antibiotics aren't going to work anymore in the future. And man, what, what fear that struck into people. We realize how much we rely on things like that to take away our fear. But what if all of a sudden it's gone? What if it doesn't work anymore? How do we deal with the fear? Disease and illness are like the snare of the fowler that he mentions earlier in the psalm because they catch you unaware. You don't plan to get sick. You don't plan to get the plague. You, it pounces on you out of nowhere. You don't plan to get cancer. It happens to you and you deal with it. One day you think you're fine. The next day you've got a deadly disease. How do you not live in the fear of that? The psalmist says dwell in the Lord. And you won't live in the fear of that. The third category I would call accidents or tragedies. The psalmist says, when you dwell in the Lord, there's no need to fear accidents or tragedies. In verse 12, it refers to stumbling over a stone. Now, again, you know, that doesn't sound like that big a deal to us. But back then, stumbling over a stone, you know, they didn't have pavements like, or sidewalks like we walk on. It was dangerous to walk out there on the paths through the wilderness or through the woods or even down the streets. And you could fall and break an ankle and your whole life could be changed. Didn't have the medical care we have today. So falling over a stone and breaking something is a much bigger deal. But notice what he says, beginning in verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, a young lion and a serpent you will trample underfoot. The psalmist is reminding us that there are powerful spiritual beings all around us, watching over us, serving us, protecting us, all at God's command. Christians talk about a guardian angel as though we have like one angel up there in heaven that's assigned to us and to watch over us. And people say, well, the Bible doesn't really teach that. And it doesn't teach that there's one angel watching over you by name and has the sole responsibility of caring for you. The Bible teaches that there are many angels watching over you, caring for you. Better news than just a garden angel, guardian angel. You have many angels caring for you. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That needs to be part of your worldview. It's that there are spirit, powerful spiritual beings all around you protecting you from other powerful spiritual beings who are your enemies, but also protecting you from dangers, from death, from disease, from who knows what. It's, the Bible doesn't go into the details, but the mysterious reality is you are protected by God's angels. The psalmist reminds us. Remember when Elisha was in the city and he was surrounded, the king of Syria had sent his armies to surround the city that Elisha was in, and Elisha's servant was beside himself in fear. And Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure the servant said, wait, let me count, one, two, you know, and then all these armies around us. What do you mean, more who are with us than are more with, are with them? And then Elisha prayed for his servant and said, Lord, just open his eyes for a minute. Let him see the spiritual world for just a second. And his servant looked out the window again, and he saw myriads of angelic armies surrounding the armies of the king of Syria. That's reality for God's people. And we need to be reminded that God cares for us even through the angels who serve him and glorify him. Now, at this point, I need to stop, because I know some of you are thinking, what do you mean no evil shall be allowed to befall you? No plague come, will come near your tent. Is this psalm promising that if you're a believer, you will not suffer? Because I'll be honest with you, if you were to read it at a surface level, and only if this was the only revelation from God that you had about what it meant to be a disciple, the most obvious interpretation of Psalm 91 is that a believer will never suffer. This psalm has actually been a great comfort. It's been one of the most loved psalms throughout all the centuries of the church because it gives great comfort to those who are going through suffering. And you think... That's kind of odd, isn't it? Because it actually seems to promise that believers won't suffer. But Scripture interprets Scripture. And we know that this psalm, in the context of the rest of the Scripture, is not saying that believers won't suffer. I wish it was. I mean, I, <laughs> that would be a much easier gospel to sell. We'd pack this place out. If we were to preach the gospel that become a believer in Jesus Christ and your life will never be bad again. Only good things will happen to you. No bad things will ever happen to you. We could sell that gospel really well in this world. Well, at least for about six hours until people start to realize that 
Bad things do happen to God's people. God's people do suffer. But that's the message of the rest of Scripture. These promises must be interpreted in light of three things that the rest of Scripture teaches us. Three things that the rest of Scripture teaches us. First of all, do not dismiss the fact that if you are part of God's covenant people and live in the covenant community, there is a great level of protection for you within God's covenant family. The word, the reason I bring up the covenant here is because he keeps saying the Lord. In verse 2, I will say to the Lord. And you'll notice there again that the word Lord is all in capital letters, which means in the original Hebrew, whenever you see that in the English translation, that means in the original Hebrew, the word Lord is the word Yahweh. I am that I am is the name that God gave to Moses, the name that, by which he identified himself as being the covenant God who bound himself by means of a covenant promise to his people that through the blood of the covenant, which he provided through the blood of a sacrifice, he bound himself to a people forever that he would save these people, bring these people to himself and love these people and care for these people, and yes, protect these people. And it is definitely true that living in God's household as part of his covenant family is a much safer place than living outside of God's household, out there in what the Bible calls the world, where Jesus Christ is not Lord and Savior. Living outside the covenant is the truly scary place. It says in verse 8, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense, the punishment of the wicked. You see, man's greatest fear outside of Christ should not be anything in this world. Man's greatest fear outside of Christ should be of Christ, the judge of all mankind. Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But see, the beauty is, is that if you've been bound to God by his covenant of grace, that means that he has sent his covenant head, his mediator, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous life that we cannot live and then to take his life in all of its perfection and allow himself to be nailed to a cross. And there, God the Father poured out his wrath that all of our sins deserve. He poured it out upon his son and the blood of Christ was shed as the blood of atonement that covers our sin. That's the blood of the covenant. And there is no greater cure for fear than the blood of the covenant. It, the blood of the covenant should take away all your fear of anything in this world. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's a very important psychological, spiritual, worldview point that's being made there. 
That you, if you are bound to God by his covenant of grace because of your faith in Jesus Christ, the covenant mediator, if you are part of the covenant community by faith and his blood is paid for your sin, then you can know for sure that any suffering that you go through is not a punishment for your sin. Christ was punished for your sin if you trust in him alone for salvation. Christ was punished for your sin. So God will never punish you for your sin. And I have to define terms here. When I say, God, if you're a believer and you're covered in the blood of Christ, God will never punish you for your sin. I'm not saying that he won't allow bad things to happen as a result of your sin. He will. There are bad consequences to our sins most of the time. But that's never punishment in the sense of punishment of a judge punishing a criminal. It's never condemnation. It's never you paying what is owed for what you did wrong. And the reason I emphasize this is I talk to Christians who should know better all the time. Who, when they do sin and bad circumstances and consequences come into their life, they'll come to me and say, I know God is angry at me because of what I did. And I'll say, if you trust in Christ, then Christ died for that sin. And it would be unjust for God to punish you for what Christ died for. Well, then why do I have bad consequences to my sin? It's because God does punish you, but not in the sense of a judge, but in the sense of a loving father. It's discipline. The same reason a loving father will cause bad consequences to come into the life of a son who disobeys his rules because he wants to teach him, because he doesn't want him to repeat the mistake. He doesn't want him to repeat the sin. He will discipline him, but he'll never punish him like a judge. He'll never reject him because of his sin. And so understand what Psalm 91 is talking about in the context of the covenant. That it is a safer place to live within the covenant because we don't do, hopefully, things like they do out in the world. The reason that the world faces great, greater danger than we, we face is because sin causes dangerous situations. And so hopefully in the covenant community, even though we sin, we do not sin like the world does. So it is a safer place, but we will still suffer, but not because of our sin, but because of God's love for us to discipline us as a loving father. That's the first broader context of scripture. The second broader context of scripture is that we will only suffer what God allows for his good purposes. This psalm is reminding us of God's power and authority to deliver us from suffering. He can and often does deliver us from suffering. But it doesn't guarantee that it's always his good and perfect will to deliver us from suffering. The idea that we could live a life free from suffering would contradict the rest of Scripture. The Apostle Paul suffered for the sake of Christ in the gospel. The Apostle Peter talks about suffering as being God's will for his people. And James tells us to rejoice in our suffering, not because of the suffering itself, because of what it does in us and through us. When the psalmist says that these bad things will not come near you, you always read that with with the understood statement that would come after it, which would be, apart from God's will, it will not come near you. If you suffer, it is for your good and for the sake of your mission on earth. 
Joseph understood that. That's why he could look at his brothers who had sold him into slavery, that had led to years and years of being imprisoned and suffering greatly. He could look at these same brothers and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He understood that his suffering had a purpose for his life and for how God was going to use Joseph's life to bless others. And every believer knows that very same thing. Job suffered greatly, but the book of Job teaches us that there was always a hedge of protection around Job. At first, that hedge of protection was very broad and it allowed for Job to have many children and lots of possessions and lots of, of power and lots of blessing in this world. But God, as Satan asked to move that hedge closer to Job himself in the very core of his soul, God allowed for that, but there was always a hedge there. God allowed for, for Satan to even take away Job's health but the hedge of protection was always there for Job to the point where Job could say, even if he slay me, I will trust him. Because ultimately Job knew that he was secure in the will of God. And Job had to learn, and that's what the whole book of Job is about. Job learning that God always has a good purpose for what he asks us to endure. And one of those purposes is the witness that we have to others. When one who trusts in the Lord, one who dwells in the Lord, suffers, it's never because of our sin, as punishment, as a judge for our sin. It's never to pay for our sin. And it's never because we are the victim of bad circumstances. The Lord is in control. Listen to this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He said, it is impossible that any ill, and by ill he means bad things, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. When God asks us to suffer, he does so as part of a calling to suffer. It's a ministry. There's a good purpose behind every suffering that we endure in God's great plan. Jesus' disciples once asked him why a man was born blind. They said, was it his sin he's being punished for? Or is his parents' sin? Jesus said, Not, neither. This was one of the, that God was calling to himself. His purpose was so that the glory of God might be revealed in him that he might manifest the works of God. As I think about that answer, I think of the, the young man that we've been praying for as a church, the son of our missionary, who had a tragedy. Suddenly, one day, he's fine, he's healthy, his life is normal, and a wall falls on him inexplicably. And as a result of it, he has his foot amputated. And we've all been praying for Nick, but we've also been watching Nick grow in his faith. You read the updates. You read his father's accounts of how God is working in his life. And you praise God that, yes, he's lost a foot, but he's gained spiritually so much in such a short time. And far beyond that, the testimony that his life has had upon the, the people in that hospital, his family, his friends, the people on the mission field that he left, and all of our churches that are praying for him and supporting him. What a witness to the glory of God his suffering for Christ has been. 
I even think about my own family. It was just two years ago, a little less than two years ago, that my daughter was having an incredibly difficult pregnancy, and the doctor said her life was in danger. And the life of her son, who was about to be born, was in danger. And the Lord, we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and the Lord preserved my daughter's life. She saved her through that. And even though her son was born dead, the Lord brought him back to life several minutes later. And so we praise God. He answered our prayer. The bad things that we prayed would not happen didn't happen. But then we found out that he was badly brain damaged by the time he had spent without breathing. And we've been praying every day since, Lord, heal him. Lord, please heal him. And that would have been a great testimony to see God miraculously heal that, that little boy. But I'm also seeing a testimony to God's power and God's grace through my daughter's testimony, through my daughter's life, through my son-in-law's life, and through this little boy's life, as he suffers, as part of God's good and perfect plan, because it's all about eternity. It's about the kingdom. It's not about health and wealth and prosperity here. It's about the kingdom of God, the gospel, and the glory of the kingdom. And so we praise God. We rejoice in the midst of suffering. And then finally, the point that we know from the rest of Scripture is that we are ultimately invincible in Christ. When you think about that hedge, when it comes to what's all, really all that we are, all that we have, all that is good about us, there is a hedge that protects all of that for eternity. Ultimately, eternally speaking, we are invincible in Christ because of what Christ did for us at the cross. And, I, and kind of a strange way in which the psalm points us to this. Look at verses 11 to 13 again. Does this sound familiar? We read those earlier in the service, in the account of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he quoted scripture to him once. Jesus was quoting scripture to him, so Satan decided he'd quote scripture back to Jesus. And this is the passage, verses 11 and 12. Those are the verses that Satan quoted to Jesus in the wilderness. He said, for he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And so based on what the scripture says, Satan said to Jesus, go ahead and throw yourself off the top of the temple. Prove your father, prove yourself, jump off the temple, and let the angels do what God has promised they would do. He sounded like a prosperity preacher, didn't he? It's not God's will that you suffer, Jesus. Can't be God's will that you suffer. So go ahead and jump off the top of the, the temple and let, show the whole world that God will take care of you and not let you suffer. And Jesus said, it's not right to put God to the test. But the unstated message is, I was called to suffer. That's why I'm here. I came to earth to suffer for the sins of God's people. It's exactly why I'm here to suffer. You know, what's interesting is that Satan left out verse 13. He quoted verses 11 and 12, but left off verse 13, which says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot, which I believe is a prophetic reference 
to what God had said back in Genesis 3.15 when he promised that he would deal with the sin of Adam and Eve and all of their successors, all, their, their, all who would come from them. He would deal with their sin by sending a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Which is exactly what happened at the cross where Jesus died for us and therefore defeated death, conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered the world and was raised from the dead for our justification. You see, Satan didn't want to remind Jesus of that. But Paul, in the, in the end of the book of the Romans, because of what Jesus' ultimate defeat of Christ, of Satan on the cross, Paul says at the end of the book of Romans, you soon will crush Satan under your heel because we are still defeating Christ, Satan. Christ is still working through the church to defeat the effects of sin and death. And one day he's going to come again and that victory will be complete. And we will experience the fullness of our salvation. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He didn't mean we won't suffer. He means ultimately, against the power of Satan and all the kingdom of darkness, he cannot touch you. You are invincible. You are protected as you dwell in me. In light of that, and you know, I, I, I hate to turn to it because it sounds kind of trite, it's so familiar. I'm not going to, you know, you, you, there's Romans 8, 28. God works together all things for good for those who love God according to his purpose. But that's not the verse that actually I want to focus on. I want to go to the end of chapter 8. This is so familiar, but in light of the promises of Psalm 91, listen to this with, with new ears, so to speak. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's exactly what the writer of Psalm 91 is saying in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Ultimately, none of these bad things will come near to us because we are invincible in Christ. So just a few thoughts then on how you face your fears. You're not a victim of stress. You just have fears. As people who are growing in their faith day by day, you have fears about living in a fallen world. How do you face the fears? Listen to what verses, the, the, the speaker changes, if you didn't notice that. In Psalm 91, the speaker changes at verse 14, and God himself starts to speak. Instead of it being a testimony about God, God himself speaks. And he describes what it means to dwell in him. 
To, first of all, he says to dwell in the Lord is to hold fast to him in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love. That's what we talked about last week. Clinging to God. Cleaving to God. Holding fast to him. Pursuing him. That's how you face your fears. Hold fast to him in love. Because he holds fast to you. Secondly, to dwell in the Lord is to know him. Look at verse 14. He knows my name. When God says my name in scripture, he means the names by which he has revealed himself. In other words, his revealed nature, his character, his power, his authority, how God has revealed himself to us. Know how God has revealed himself to us. Know his revelation. Know his word. Know him doctrinally, but also know him experientially. Trust him and see what happens. Build up a, a, a track record of trusting in him and letting him show himself to be faithful because that's who he reveals himself to be. He will keep his promises to you. And the more he keeps his promises to you, the more you will trust him. To dwell in the Lord is to know him. And thirdly, to dwell in the Lord is to call upon him constantly. Look at verse 15. When he calls to me, I will hear him. I will answer him. There is a direct connection between your prayer life and your stress level. You cling to the Lord. You pursue the Lord. You hold fast to him. You know him by means of hearing his word to you and praying back to him. Prayer is the way to overcome your fears. Call upon him. It's the same thing that Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, abide in me and I will abide in you. Abide in him. Learn to trust him continuously, daily, in the day and in the night, as you face the dangers of the day and the dangers of the night. Trust in him. Depend upon him. That's the work of his Holy Spirit in you. One day, Jesus was on a boat with his disciples and he was actually sleeping in the bottom of the boat. But a vicious, deadly storm hit on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples literally feared for their lives. And they woke Jesus up and said, don't you care about us? We're about to die here. And Jesus said, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? He was with them. He had all power and authority over that storm, and he showed it by stopping it, by speaking a word. Some of you need to hear him say that to you today. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? And ask the Lord to give you greater faith to overcome your fear. I'm going to conclude by just reading in the voice of God as he gives it at the end of that psalm, all the promises to you who will abide in him. Here are the promises from the Lord our safe place. I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. Dwell in the Lord and all those promises are yours. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for giving our fears a different name and therefore living with them. Help us to recognize our fears for what they are. Help us to stop talking about the things that stress us out and begin to talk about the things that we're afraid of. 
to be honest with ourselves and honest with others and most of all, honest with you. And then, Lord, strengthen our faith, increase our faith, we ask, that our fears might dissipate. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.